Welcome to another episode of the Arc and Anth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Rivera, and this is the podcast where we talk about people, our evolutionary history, our biology, and almost everything else. So today we are going to welcome another expert onto the podcast, Dr. Darcy Shapiro. Darcy, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Darcy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing quite well as well. Um, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Livermore, California today. Oh, wow. Is it nice there? Uh, it's mostly been kind of rainy, gray, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, it's California. So mm-hmm. so um, before we start this interview, I also want to let you know that your episode is going to come out on January 1st. Ooh, first one of the new year. Yeah. So, you know, to all the listeners... Happy New Year. Yeah, happy New Year, guys. <laughs> yeah, happy 2020. Welcome. Um, and I'm, I was uh, in preparation for this. I was looking back at like how we first met or like I was trying to remember how we first interacted. And I think that we had connected through like the conference that happens every year in America. Yeah, I think it was the Atlanta one where they mm-hmm. started trying to do stuff on Twitter and we're like looking for people that knew how to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, We also have a mutual friend, uh, Devin Ward, who also has done an episode in the past. So yeah, a bit of connection there. She's excellent. (laughs) Always always want to give props to Devin. Mm -hmm. How long ago was that when you had uh, taught her when she was an undergrad? Oh gosh, that must have been like 2011. She was in the very first class that I ever TA'd, like the first (laughs) meeting of the first class. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what that was like to to teach? Uh, Scary. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit like uh, stand-up comedy, (laughs) but... But also a little bit scary. Yeah. Just trying to like hope that they don't boo you. <laughs> Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Just try to keep them entertained. I think that section was at like 8 p.m. Oh, no. So on a Tuesday, maybe people didn't really want to be on campus anymore. So I had mm-hmm. to get them really hyped about extinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, about extinction. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what kind of uh, what classes were you teaching back at Rutgers? Uh, that class th- the, that I TA'd was actually called Extinction. Okay. Um, and I TA'd it for my PhD advisor mm-hmm. like five or six times. That was my, my fall standard class. Yeah. The other stuff that I taught at Rutgers was, you know, human osteology and osteology lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did like a short foray into primate conservation biology my last semester there, um, which was like, kind of out of my area, but also something I took as a grad student and really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And so, um, like if you could, uh, talk to Darcy, like back in 2011 or 2012 ish, um, would she be surprised by what you are currently doing? I don't know. It's a really good question. Uh, she probably wouldn't be surprised that I'm not still teaching. Mm -hmm. I can say that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but she probably never envisioned that I was going to end up being a YouTube person, I guess. Mm -hmm. And what is it that you do on YouTube? Uh, So I'm now officially the content manager for uh, the YouTube channel PBS Eons, Mm -hmm. which is produced by Complexly, um, which is also the company that makes like Crash Course and SciShow and some of the other really big YouTube science education channels. Cool, yeah. I mean, congratulations. That's a promotion recently, right? Thanks. Yeah. I started as a freelancer for them and kind of worked my way up from freelancer to part-time script editor. And now I'm Mm full-time. 
managing content. Amazing. Like, so uh, what do you typically work on? Like, what is your typical work week like? So mostly I read and respond to and edit um, pitches and outlines and scripts that our incredible squad of freelance writers is putting together for the channel at any given time. Mm -hmm. Um, I have some like standing Skype meetings, but it's mostly me in front of my computer, like Google Docs all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, What kind of videos, uh, like what kind of topics do you cover on this YouTube channel? Uh, So it's natural history, kind of writ broadly. We do, you know, specific organisms. Um, Our latest episode that just came out was about the bear dogs, Mm -hmm. um, which are these uh, carnivores that were this kind of bridge between like older things that were meat eaters, but are not carnivores, Mm -hmm. like part of the group carnivora today. Um, So they were a bridge between these older things and like the modern carnivores that we have today. Mm -hmm. And they were just, they got really big and like impressive looking and then they died out. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, like when we're talking about um, periods of time uh, on this anthropology podcast, we we talk a lot about um, you know human evolution in the last six or seven million years. Um, but when you're on on this YouTube channel, a lot of the videos are about organisms, about animals that were living before uh, anything resembling humans, right? Yeah, we get into a more deep time paleontology stuff. Um, and like my minor in undergrad is in paleontology. So I have some familiarity there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for a long time when I was freelancing for the channel, I was the one that was writing just the human evolution stuff. <laughs> uh, and we've picked up a couple more anthropologists now that are going to start to kind of take that over now that I've moved into this more full-time editing and content role. Mm-hmm. So how many like uh, millions of years are we talking about when we're talking about like the Miocene and like what marks the Miocene? Like why is it such a special time for like evolution? Oh, I'm like obsessed with the Miocene. This is my favorite time period. Mm-hmm. So it's like about 23 to about 5 million years ago. Um, and it's when we get this incredible proliferation of like very weird mammals that are trending toward the fauna we see today, mm-hmm. um, including this like huge explosion of uh, apes in Europe and Asia, just like very diverse interesting and different locomotion, which is like my other obsession. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The Miocene's just really cool. Mm-hmm. You said like that there are apes in Europe and when these stories have come out recently, I've always been very surprised by that because all the apes that I know are, uh, you know, have, have evolved mainly like uh, in, in tropical regions. Yeah. Uh, Europe used to be quite a bit warmer. Uh, more kind of tropically forested a mm-hmm. bit, a much better ape habitat than, than it was, than it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when you were like doing your PhD, were you also working on similar uh, topics, like in a similar area? So my PhD is about reconstructing locomotion in primates using the internal structure of their hip bones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really interested in how we can use what we know about living primates, how they get around, uh, how that translates into the structure of their hip bones. And then from there, how do we kind of go back into the past, look at hip bones from primates that we have from the Miocene, and then figure out how they were moving around. Uh, Because it seems to have been a time when apes were doing a lot more different things than they do now. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, uh, how when we're talking about these apes, we're we're not talking about apes that we might know today, right? Not unless you're like a paleo nerd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about just a, a diversity of of apes from um, northern Spain has deposits that have a lot of Miocene apes, like four or five different genera. Um, I worked at a site in Hungary that it's called Rudobanya. Um, it has mm-hmm. its own fossil ape, and that's why we're interested in working there. Uh, mm-hmm. France, France has some. They're kind of all over Central and Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And and what what distinguishes them as like the first apes as opposed to some other kind of mammal? Oh, well, they're not really they're not necessarily the first apes, mm-hmm. um, but they definitely seem to be apes and not monkeys. Like they have more of the kind of upright body plan that we have and that living apes do. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have tails, which is like a classic ape thing mm-hmm. to not have a tail. When you were doing um, YouTube videos that were, um, for example, about these apes, what is the what is the process um, like at the very beginning of preparing one of these videos? And, and how many people are involved in, in designing these videos? Um, <laughs> the process pretty much looks like uh, somebody pitches an idea for me when I'm, when I'm doing it. It's, you know, I write up a short paragraph with some sources um, that basically says like, here's a really cool thing. Here's something weird and kind of counterintuitive about it. Here's what we know about it. And then I send that off to my producer, Blake DiPacino, who's like a great, a great boss. Mm -hmm. Um, He reads it and he comes back to me like, well, is this really cool? Like sometimes he counter pitches me on, on different angles for the story. Um, and then from there, once we have a pitch okayed, it goes to outline phase um, mm-hmm. where we just get a rough sketch of what the, the arc is going to look like, um, flesh out some of the details. Uh, we go back and forth a couple of rounds of edits on that. And then it moves mm-hmm. into script form, um, which is again, another couple of rounds of edits. It goes to our fact checker. Um, every script that we do is is vetted by one of our hosts, um, Callie, who's a paleontologist by training. Uh, and then from there, it gets shot and it goes into post-production. So any script has at least four or five people that, that mm-hmm. touch it before it makes it onto the channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when, when you're like, um, so I'm so curious about this because when I do this podcast, it, it pretty much is up to me <laughs> how, how to um, frame it or how to, um, yeah. you know, distribute it. And um, when you're, when you guys are going back and forth um, and you're going through multiple rounds of edits together, I'm, I'm curious, so curious about like, what exactly are you um, editing? Like what kinds of things are you checking each other on or uh, what kind of comments are you giving each other to, you know, hopefully make a, a good product? Um. So I think it's really important that we have a couple of people with different perspectives coming at each of the scripts. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm bringing, you know, the paleo framing, like this is the body of knowledge that I know and here's some cool stuff from it. Um, and then Blake, uh, he jokes about being like the English major of the, <laughs> the squad. Um, mm-hmm. But he's really good at checking our blind spots or my blind spots or some of our other writers where like, something that I think is obvious yeah. is like not apparently, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a, a, it's a really collaborative process. Um, but I think it, it makes the product 
better at the end. Yeah. Um, another thing that I don't have to worry about uh, by doing uh, this podcast and kind of doing science communication in in this format is uh, it's all like audio. And whenever I watch, uh, you know, PBS Eon's uh, YouTube videos, I just marvel at how beautiful, like, the whole video is because of all of these like wonderful illustrations of these uh, ancient animals. Yeah, yeah, we work with some really incredible paleo artists. Um, Two fifty two million years studio, I think is their their name. Um, mm-hmm. Julio Lacerda and Franz Anthony, I think his last name is. Um, yeah. yeah, they they do a lot of our illustrations. Um, Mm -hmm. and they're incredible. They're always really good. (laughs) Yeah. What is your, like, um, you know, like just your favorite kind of, do you have favorite episodes? Are you allowed, are you allowed to say that whether you have a favorite one? (laughs) Um, Oh, I probably not allowed to have favorite episodes. Um, Which ones do you like, uh, if you had, if you could pick like two or three that you, you really recommend people check out. Which, which ones might those be? Oh, our greatest hit of the last couple of months was cat domestication, like by far. <laughs> yeah. It, like, yeah, it, it took over our sphere of the internet. Um, mm-hmm. It was so successful that we, we delayed the next week's video by a week so we could keep uh-huh. like seeing it go up. Because it was like a like a big like like a Avengers like it, it could just stay in the cinema for ages. <laughs> it was like it was a small amount viral, I guess. Um, but that episode was written by Alex Fitzpatrick, who's a, an archaeologist, who's really great, really great to work with. She was with. on uh, episode six of our show, actually. Oh, awesome! Yeah, yeah. She she wrote that. How many views did it get? It's over two million now. Um, Amazing! Yeah. Yeah, and for for just being up for a couple of weeks, that's like. Those are pretty big numbers for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how often do you guys, uh, you know, put out an episode? They usually go up on Tuesdays every week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for our next season, we're maybe going to be switching to three episodes a month rather than four, um, just so we have a bit more time to to work things out um, yeah. and, and concentrate on each episode a little bit more. Uh, what would you say are like some of the like biggest challenges of doing of doing the job? So there's there's two sides of this. There's like. Uh, Knowing what I don't know is one of the challenges. Like when I'm, you know, if I'm editing a script about a topic where where I don't necessarily know as much about it, um, I have to stop and consider like, okay, what am I, what am I missing? Is there something that I'm missing here that should be really obvious? So that's kind of on yeah. my side. Um, and then kind of on the other side is, is a lot of the writers that we work with uh, are grad students for the most part mm-hmm. um, and, and working around everyone's schedule and being able to be flexible and accommodating of, of stuff that comes up. This is also mm-hmm. a bit of a challenge. So we try to have a couple of things in production at, at the same time so we can balance, yeah. balance people's lives and the work. Yeah, that sounds like that, that makes sense. Uh, how, how do you work through the first problem of like, you know, how to work through the things that you don't know. I'm still figuring it out. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it mostly, it, it means I do like a deep internet rabbit hole <laughs> dive. Yeah. yeah. Like what else have people said about this? Is is this idea like too fringy? Are we getting into like a weird place here? Mm-hmm. Um, but you also want to be uh, original in a way as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, we have this kind of thing that we're always looking for for Eon's episodes, which is this kind of moment of counterintuition or twist. Yeah. Um, because obvious answers are obvious, right? And we want to we want to tell people interesting and accurate and compelling stories about our past Mm -hmm. um, that that they maybe not have not heard of or have not thought about in this way before Mm -hmm. um 
before you uh, did, uh, before you worked at Eons, I was wondering uh, how did you, you know, you start to become interested in not just being a scientist, but also being a science communicator? Oh, my first step down this path uh, was this graduate student run conference in 2014. Um, it's called ComSciCon. It's still going. It now has like many different franchises in different locations, essentially. Um, but they're all founded on this principle of like teaching science, communi- having grad students teach science communication to other grad students. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they have, you know, panels of experts. Um, everybody works on writing up a, a popular science style piece um, during the process of the, the conference. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it was, it made me excited about my science again, which as like a fifth year grad student at the time was <laughs> really, really, <laughs> it was, it was a struggle. Yes. Um, <laughs> But yeah, talking to a lot of different people who were just really excited to talk about science mm-hmm. was that was like the first step towards this science communication thing that I do now. Yeah. Um, do you remember like, you know, what are some of the, the biggest lessons that you had learned about communicating science uh, when you hadn't done it before? You have to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a good fundamental for, for science communication. Um, yeah, it's about... Everyone says, oh, it's about knowing your audience. And then nobody really tells you like how you're supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, but on some level, it's, yeah, it's having, having dialogues, figuring out where people are, what they know, and then how you can connect what you're doing to something that they care about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was wondering, like, do you, do you think that uh, there's a lot of uh, public um, knowledge or awareness of you know, a a period of time such as the Miocene? Like, are people familiar with all of these weird uh, mammals that used to live before us? Probably not as familiar as they are with stuff like dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. right? The the Miocene maybe has a a PR problem relative (laughs) to dinosaurs. Like, I I mean, I had no idea that the Miocene was a thing. Like, I always wanted to be a paleontologist, but I thought that meant dinosaurs. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Do you think that's uh, changing? I mean, certainly with eons, I think that that's changing. I'd like to think that we're helping the Miocene's PR a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Do you, you know, like, uh, uh, I mean, this is going to sound really, um, like ridiculous, but, um, <laughs> but I, you know, my knowledge of the Miocene a little bit is a little bit in- influenced by like watching movies like Ice Age. What is your opinion on like the Ice Age movies? Oh my God. I think I saw the first one, yeah. you know, in theaters when it came out. I can't say that I've seen any of the other ones since then. Mm-hmm. Um, like Pleistocene megafauna, like, you know, Willie Mammoths and stuff. They're pretty charismatic. I think people have a sense that things used to be colder. Mam- animals used to be bigger and furrier, right? Yeah. Um, But the Miocene is just like that turned up to 11 (laughs) and further in the past. Mm -hmm. Can you give like an idea of like the diversity of the mammals that are, that were around in the Miocene? Wow, that's a really big, that's a really big question. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, A lot of the stuff that we know today and love, like most, most modern mammal groups were, were for sure around. Um. There was a lot of stuff in North America in the Miocene that we now associate with like uh, African fauna. Like there was an American lion, mm. um, which I think is actually more closely related to the cheetah. Oh, maybe. Cool. Yeah. I don't know. There's more of this like 
savannah fauna thing going on in North America at the time. Mm -hmm. Camels, camels and stuff like that. Yeah. This is maybe this is maybe not a great answer, but like the Miocene was <laughs> no, but like it was big. So my, my impression of it, yeah, from watching a lot of the videos is also that like there were also like really giant versions of many other things like that we know. So like giant rhinos and like giant armadillos and, and all kinds of, of things like this. Yep. Stuff was bigger in the Miocene. <laughs> mm -hmm. So now you're uh, the the content uh, content content manager. As a content manager, what what part of the the job now is going to be new to you? Um, I'm going to be taking on a bit more responsibility. Uh, is my understanding in terms of making sure everything makes it through the content development process in a kind of timely manner. Um, part of the the creation of this position was that we're um, developing a new show as well uh, that I can't say too much about yet. Um, wow. Yeah, but it'll be, I will be doing eons in addition to the new show. Um, and I'll be doing a lot of the same stuff behind the scenes for the new show that I've been doing for eons. So writing and editing and, you know, working with our freelancers. Cool. We're going to have to keep, uh, keep our eyes out for that. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got this tentatively scheduled for <laughs> April. April. Okay. Something will be happening in April. Okay. Interesting. Uh, how does the experience compare, like, you know, working in science communication full time now compared to working in academia? It's different in a lot of ways. Uh, so, for example, now I'm 100% remote. I'm like working from home all the time. Um, in, in grad school and in academia, you know, you have an office you go into, you see other people during the day. Mm -hmm. um, they're there for you to bounce ideas off of. Um, it's also, I guess, a bit of a culture shift in terms of how people interact. I feel like academia can be pretty um, critical in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And it seems now, at least in my role in, in science communication, that um, the people that I work with want to be kind mm -hmm. generally. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a different thing. <laughs> and it's not to say like everyone in academia is like not kind. It's just there. Is, I, I understand what you mean in that. Like there is this kind of, um, you're like subjecting each other to like, you know, scrutiny, like each other's work so that, uh, you're trying to derive like answers the big questions about human evolution and that means being quite critical about like each other's results and you get a lot of like that feedback and sometimes that's like quite uh, difficult if you're like not accustomed or uh, you don't have the personality for like receiving that kind of criticism definitely um yeah the ten it's like the tenor of the feedback and the vibe of the enterprise is just much much different Mm -hmm. now in kind of being out of academia mm -hmm. um which yeah like you said it's not to knock like all of academia or all of the people in it by any stretch like my phd advisor is an excellent dude like i had a lot of really good friends in grad school that have stayed in academia and i like kind of intend to you know still go to conferences and stuff yeah um but i don't feel like i have to participate in yeah, about being competitive, about grants and papers and stuff like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, and what about the the first thing of like 
that you don't have like people in your physical vicinity uh, to bounce ideas off of. Like uh, in, in, in where I live right now, in my situation right now, I pretty much rely a lot on online communication with people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, we have like, you know, regular Skype meetings um, with the production team and stuff like that. Um, and I'm, I'm setting up a, like a biweekly meeting with the other channels, content managers. So now we can have like internet friends cool. parties. Um, <laughs> cool. Yeah. So we can, we can see other people occasionally. It's, yeah. yeah, it's an adjustment for sure. I think that's awesome. And I think that like, there are probably people who, um, <laughs> who probably think that like what I, what my life is like is uh, sad if everything is online, but like, I kind of grew up like this, like, you know, nine, like I was a nineties kid and uh, the internet is where I grew up. Definitely. I, I joke about, I live on the internet. I work on the internet. Like I speak the internet. This is what I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm pretty certain like when they roll them out, I'll be one of the first people they like put a chip in, in my head. Like <laughs> I'll be one of the first in It'll line. Be your thoughts on Twitter directly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Save me time. <laughs> yeah. When this episode goes out, uh, it will be the beginning of 2020. Do you know at this point, like what people can look forward to on, on PBS Eons? We have our first couple of January episodes planned out and they're in development right now. Um, mm-hmm. I've always, you know, how much can I say about exactly what we're working on? Um, but we've got some interesting geology-focused stuff planned that's happening soon, yeah. um, which is always something that, that Blake, my producer, wants to get more of on the channel. Because, uh, mm-hmm. like, there's so much weird stuff in geology that, that people don't realize um, like, what, like the entire Earth basically rusted at one point. Wow. Well, yeah, like a really, really long time in the past. Um, mm-hmm. So we always, we want to get more stuff like that going. And I know we have some good geology and new geologist writers that are going to be doing more in the new year. Mm-hmm. When you, I imagine when you are like switching topics like this, you know, you know, week to week and month to month, it kind of like keeps you on your toes and keeps you quite like excited all the time about what else is there to learn? Yes, always. This is, I guess, one of my favorite things about doing this job is getting to read all of this different stuff and getting to, to spend time researching things that I would never have gotten to do if I had stayed in an academic anthropology. Like, um, yeah, North America apparently had a giant weasel at one point <laughs> yeah. in the Miocene. I was like, what? There's a giant bone crushing weasel. I want to read all about this. <laughs> so I get to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Back when you were, uh, you actually went to go on excavation and you actually analyzed fossils. Do you ever bring any of that into uh, your work, you know, day to day at uh, Eons? In the sense that there are fossils that I have worked on that we've talked about in videos. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a way that I can sneak that in. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm planning to still, to be able to do some excavating if I'm, if I'm lucky. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And hopefully working for eons will, will let me, you know, have a little time to go do that. Yeah. Like when it comes to your, your friends and your family, I was wondering like, uh, what do they think about you working in SciComm? Well, they're mostly just happy that I'm employed. So <laughs> mm-hmm. having the the YouTube channel and the videos that I can point to and be like, this is what I do, um, makes it more tangible 
to like my parents um, than when I was working on the dissertation. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you know, they came to my defense and I, oh, wow. you know, I gave them, <laughs> oh yeah, this was about the only time that they visited me in New Jersey, but <laughs> I came to the defense. Wow. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, I, always, so, I always marveled when like, because uh, I know that in Europe and in America, like you do have like public defenses, like people can come and see it. Um, but I, I, I did it in the British system where that's not a thing. And from where I stand, like, that's a good thing. I don't want my family to watch me when I'm defending. <laughs> I, I don't know. I achieved a real moment of like personal Zen in my defense where I, you know, I had written the thing, I had made the PowerPoint, I had practiced it and I was like, all right, I'm ready. Let's do this. Like, here it is. This is what I've done for the last seven years of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, like I said, they, they came and they saw it, um, but it's still pretty weird and obscure to them. And yeah. now when they're like, oh, this is what my daughter does, they can like, here's the link to the YouTube video. Watch this. She wrote it. Yeah. That makes more sense for sure. I mean, I gave my uh, thesis to my mom and she told me that she read the abstract and she fell asleep reading the abstract. Oh. <laughs> but, she's, yep. but she's supportive. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that you can get that supportive feeling, even if they're not like knee deep in your work the way that you are. Yeah. They're still proud that that, you know, we did it. Yeah. Uh, and, and were you yourself proud? For sticking it out? I think so. Mm -hmm. Um I think there came a time in grad school where I knew that I was not going to be a professor and I wasn't going to stay in the kind of traditional academic tenure track thing. Okay. Um, and that maybe, maybe what I was going to end up doing, I didn't actually need a PhD for, but I'd already spent so much time in it that I was like, well, I just got to finish. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, like, because <clears throat> cause at the moment, I, I finished my PhD like in the last year as well. And I'm in this weird like liminal space where I don't really know. It, it'll depend on what comes my way, like in terms of jobs. It could be a, a SciComm job and it also could be an academic job. Um, but uh, I, I have seen some positions out there that are like a lecturer in anthropology and public understanding of science. Um, and they're rare. They're, they're not everywhere. It, it's really like only two or three out there, uh, at least in, in Britain, where I'm most familiar with, like in the UK, there are a few people who hold such positions. And, you know, do, do you think that these kinds of uh, roles are, are being created in universities in the States? I don't know. I'm not sure if I've seen any postings for jobs like that in the US. I mean, I guess for mm -hmm. us, it mostly seems like science communication, if you're going to do it at an institution, you're not doing it as a professor, you're doing it, you know, within a communications department, or you're based in a museum, right. and you're doing it that way. But yeah, I mean, if people want to start developing those jobs in the US, that would be incredible. I'm not going to apply for them. But like more power <laughs> to everyone that does. Yeah. 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 I think like, uh, if, if a professor does it, it's just, uh, it's because they are passionate about it themselves and they somehow carve out time in the very limited time that they have amongst all their other duties to do that. Definitely. And it's not necessarily rewarded in the way that it probably should be. Yeah. Um, but I know that some people are, um, at least like in the North American context, they're like trying to, 
trying to improve that, basically. Oh, definitely. It's like um, Holly Dunsworth does some, some really great stuff in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Christi- Christina Kilgrove, like when it comes to uh, bioarchaeology oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have to undergo like lots of training like before you, you know, felt confident as a science communicator? Uh, do I feel confident as a science communicator? Do you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but my comfort zone for SciComm is definitely behind the scenes in the, the job that I'm doing now and in the kinds of positions like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a, a brief internship at the New Jersey State Museum where I worked in their fishbowl fossil preparation lab. Um, I was working on dinosaur bones, so that was another weird, confusing thing to be like, well, I'm an anthropologist, but like, here's a triceratops and let me tell you about it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and the having the fishbowl prep lab meant that people could basically come up to the windows, which would be open and they could lean in and they could ask me, you know, what am I, what am I doing? What am I working on? Wow. wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, it's a bit like being in a zoo. Um, <laughs> but the kind of stuff that I do for eons was definitely more comfortable to me than having, you know, a 10 year old come up to the window and want to ask me every question about dinosaurs that they possibly could. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, in the, in that role, I occasionally had people come up and ask me, you know, really challenging stuff like, uh, do you really believe that this stuff is that old? Right. And it was, it was obviously coming from a person uh, of faith. um, Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. Right. I wanted to be like, I don't, I don't believe this. I, I understand the science behind it. We use, you know, chemistry and physics to be able to date things. Um, but to, yeah, to be put on the spot, to have to come up with a an answer to a question that's, you know, hard and to, to have empathy and yeah. to not, yeah, not put your foot in it is, uh, it's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. It's what you said at the beginning. It's like you, you have to try and like meet people where they are. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to be like, well, everything that you've been told is wrong and here I'm going to give you the right answer because that's like not, that's not how you make friends and influence people. I don't know. <laughs> Never read that book, but uh, I get the idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> and and when you were, uh, you know, really young, like, d- did you always know that you would be, you know, one day become a scientist? I always wanted to be a paleontologist. I was like that kid. I never grew out of it. And it was, you know all dinosaurs all the time Mm -hmm. uh, until I got to undergrad at the University of Michigan and they didn't have an undergraduate major in paleontology. So I said, okay, I'll take like a sideways step into biological anthropology. Yeah. So still bones, still (laughs) skeletons, just different ones. Yeah. I mean, when when you were young and you really loved dinosaurs, like in what ways would that manifest? Oh, I always wanted to go to museums, you know? My, um, my grandpa- one son of my grandparents lived in Chicago. So, and we would go up there for Father's Day every year, which often coincides with my birthday. And I'd be like, okay, what I want to do for my birthday is I want to go to the Field Museum. <laughs> yes. It was like, I want to do this every year. I want to see the same exhibits. I want to look at the bones. I want to spend like way too much time in their evolution <laughs> hall. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that was how that manifested. <laughs> also, just like encyclopedic nerd style kid reading about dinosaurs, so you yeah. could like name them all and knew all their facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what what do you think about like uh, the Jurassic World movies now? Again, I only saw the the first one that they made that was Jurassic World. Okay, I I just 
it's a monster. It's a monster movie. Yeah. It's a monster movie where the dinosaur is the monster. Mm, like some of them, like not to spoil it, but you know, some of them are also heroes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think, yeah, I think the original Jurassic Park movie did a lot of really interesting stuff at the time for science communication in terms of it, it communicated some of what the science the real science was at the time about those those dinosaurs. Okay. Um, but the franchise has moved away from that now, and I'm not... Yeah, it's entertainment, and that's fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not everything about dinosaurs has to be, like, science communication E. Some of it can be fun. If, uh, if we asked uh, you, Dr. Shapiro, to, uh, you know, be a consultant on uh, Miocene Park, what would you... What would, how would you uh, write the story? Oh, man. <laughs> I gotta think about yeah. this. So, so they're going to go find uh, ancient uh, amber yeah. and they're going to get mosquitoes who have bitten these mammals. And then they're going to clone Miocene uh, apes and other Miocene animals. What happens? <laughs> I mean, something terrible, I'm sure. <laughs> if, if Jurassic Park taught us nothing. Right. I mean, it would be really cool. I guess. There'll be one scary one, probably, like a Miocene like lion or something would be like the big baddie. Right. Right. You'd have some sort of giant mammalian carnivore like prowling through an industrial kitchen. <laughs> it's gonna get the kid. Right, with the with the claw like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean I think they're really Yeah. <laughs> from like a science side, the really incredible thing, if they could do that, would be like back to my like Miocene ape nerd roots. Um, that so many of the apes from the Miocene seem to be doing something very different from what living apes do. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes it really hard to figure out what that was without any kind of modern analog. So just like seeing how they were all moving around, that would be all I would need. They wouldn't have to pay me to consult. I'd just be like, just let me watch them for a little bit. And <laughs> right. then like, I'll leave and everything will be good. Yeah. I mean, that would be really interesting as well. And especially because like you specialize in uh, locomotion, that's, you know, it's really exciting to, you know, think about, uh, you know, how all these, you know, millions of years old animals used to move around a landscape. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Like, mm -hmm. what were they doing? We don't know, really. Until they invent uh, time machines. Right. I think that's the other, like, <laughs> incredible science leap forward that every paleo person is waiting for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can we just go back and check ourselves? Like, oh, was I right? Let's go see. Right. If people want to ask you any questions about uh, this interview and they want to follow your work, can they find you somewhere online? They can always find me online. Mm -hmm. um, I'm on Twitter at Darcy, D-A-R-C-Y underscore Shapiro. Um, I'm on there pretty often. Uh, and if they want to check out what I do for eons, they can go to youtube.com slash eons. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, and uh, because I know that you've listened to some episodes before, at the end of the show, I like to ask every guest for a hashtag. Can you think of a good hashtag for this one? You know, I was thinking about this ahead of time because yeah. this this struck me as the scariest part about guesting on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, I think it's got to be about the Miocene, right? Mm -hmm. Probably. I think we could go like, uh, I heart the Miocene. I heart the Miocene. That's a great one. Is there anything that you feel we haven't covered already? Do you have any closing messages? I don't think so. Just uh, check out Eons 
on YouTube. Yeah, definitely. Like and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, <laughs> uh, if you like this episode, then definitely let Darcy and me know on social media. The podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. And I want to give a shout out to all the patrons who keep the show going into 2020. If you want to find out the benefits of becoming a patron as well, then go to patreon.com slash pod. New episodes come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Arcanath.com. Darcy, thank you so much for being today's expert. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.